This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Agiris Kurapati, also known as AK. Uh, I'm the CFO of Reversing Labs, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 631. Think in terms of the business. When someone comes and says, well, what happened that our expenses went up last quarter? To have an answer of, well, we had a large accrual for compensation. Well, that that doesn't tell you anything. You know, give the business reason behind everything. Look behind the numbers to articulate the story of what happened that answers their question. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Stephen Springsteel, CFO of BetterWorks, a supplier of OKR and performance management software. OKRs. We'll have more to say about OKRs in a second. Now, among other insights Stephen will share with you are his four key operating principles. Uh, You heard one of them just seconds ago, tell the story behind the numbers. It's a principle Stephen credits with having helped him emerge as a strategic leader. Stephen's career spans three decades, uh, and we got him to share a few of his early chapters. He was a controller at Apple, <laughs> and here he is roughly three decades later as CFO of BetterWorks. So here's where we circle back to OKRs. Uh, From our discussions with finance leaders over the last 12 months, the two areas we see finance leaders dedicating more attention to, areas that are arguably outside the traditional realm of finance, the first is the customer experience. And this has been going on for years. It's largely driven uh, by the SaaS model, we'd argue. And the second area, is people and uh, COVID has only magnified this all the more what are your people working on are they allocating their time where the company needs it most and uh, you know what are the measures and controls available to help finance leaders achieve the visibility they need to to influence the work being done in the company. Growing numbers of finance leaders would tell us it's OKRs, objectives and key results. And there's a reason uh, the book Measure What Matters has become the most recommended book on this podcast over the last 12 months, repeated again and again by our finance leader guests. Measure What Matters by venture capitalist John Doerr. It is uh, that piece of thought leadership that sort of becomes a can opener. That's what this book is. Probably uh, uh, for for the last 12 months and maybe for the next uh, three years, as more and more finance leaders are drawn to helping solve the people equation in their company. 
Our guest, CFO Stephen Springsteel, is today building a finance function to help better work scale up as it pursues the people equation opportunity that's growing out there. Our discussion with Stephen begins after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking with CFO Stephen Springsteel. Stephen, welcome. Jack, good to see you. So Stephen, as you might know, we begin always with this question. We ask our guests to look back for us and share with us those three or how many experiences they feel prepared them for a CFO role. What comes to mind for you? Yeah, actually, that was that's a pretty easy question to answer because there are three moments in early in my career that really kind of set the tone for for the rest of, of my career. The first was coming out of business school. I was were re- re- recruited by a big conglomerate in, headquartered in the, in the Midwest called Gould. And Gould had this management training program where they would get us not those kids out of business school that would work 24 by 7 and pay us next to nothing. But what it was good for was they would move us from division to division. So if there maybe it was an M&A integration, so they'd throw us into that to, to, to lead that. Or if it was implement a system, an ERP system, they would throw us into that. Or uh, one of my assignments was start up a new division. So they'd throw us into that. And so you had a wide variety of experiences, which were all almost like turnaround or high growth situations that you got thrown into. But then every quarter, they would bring you back to the company headquarters to train you on a different aspect of running of business. So it was not just how to report the numbers, but how do you run the business? And that really instilled a business problem solving mentality for me. Uh, And so, you know, with respect to the three experiences, that was the first one, I think, that really kind of set the tone for the rest of my career is is having that business mindset, not just reporting debits and credits and, you know, that type of thing. The second one is, is understanding that coming to the understanding that the financial function is more than just reporting numbers. Uh, particularly in a CFO role, you're in the middle of the company. Everything You have a view that no one else has. And you have the opportunity that you can either just report on those numbers 
Or you can take that knowledge and influence the business and help enable other functional groups, you know, be more efficient and, and grow and, and do better. And so that was another experience early on that I figured out was that's a very unique view. And so you really need to capitalize on it and, and you can affect a positive outcome. And then the third experience that I would uh, say for me was connected with a mentor early on in my career. Um, there was a mentor, a, an individual, Sam Spadafora, who uh, we were at a public company, $200 million public company. He was at EVP of sales and marketing. Sam really took me under his wing and he explained to me, you know, selling, the selling process, marketing, how all that comes together. Uh, he would bring me into transactions, both negotiating and preparing for transactions. And then he would get done, he'd say, okay, here's why we did it this way. And here's a couple of other options that we had, and here's what we did. And I really got to develop a great relationship with Sam over the years. And throughout my career, if there were any, if I had questions or, you know, I, he was a guy that I felt that I could always reach out to and bounce ideas off of, and I'd get an independent kind of a no BS answer. And uh, that was very refreshing. And those three things really helped, you know, shape me for, for my rest of my career. Now, Ultimately, you land sort of in this land of fast-growing companies, high-growth firms. Uh, and I'm wondering if you discovered that you really enjoyed sort of that weight class of company where you could have an impact. So that's what we hear from time to time from finance leaders. But was it that way for you? Did you, did you make a decision not to go the large enterprise path? Yeah, Jack. So early on in my career, I started in large companies, uh, large public companies. And Gould was, was one of them. Uh, Apple Computer was one of them. I was controller for Apple Worldwide Manufacturing Operations. Um, and so at the beginning, you know, I think coming out of business school, large companies are good because they teach you a lot. Large companies have the resources to educate you, train you about you know, all aspects of the business. And then for me, I got to a point where I said, large companies are great, but I can affect the business more in a smaller company. And, you know, for a large company to, to, to turn it, it takes a lot. It's like a big ship. The momentum and the size, it takes a long time to turn anything. Whereas in smaller companies, you can make decisions, change your strategy and so forth. And so that's, that's what prompted me to go to smaller companies. And so for me, the sweet spot is probably anywhere from about $30 million a year in revenue up to about $300 million, So in, in that range. Uh, I'm going to ask for uh, some forgiveness here for this next question. <laughs> like a lot of people, I guess, uh, like Hollywood, actually, I'm drawn to the uh, Apple early days story. Were you there before Steve Jobs returns or after? Um, well, it, it, interesting. So, uh, <laughs> so I had started there just before well, just after Steve had left, and I'd heard all the stories about Steve. I mean, they were monumental. Uh, Steve had left and went to Next at the time. Early 90s, are we, or is it late 80s? Where are we? Late 80s. We're late, late 80s. 80s. That's right. Yep, late yeah, 80s. And, and so then Steve uh, was recruiting for a CFO at Next and had reached out to me 
and had uh, said, hey, I heard a lot of great things about you. I'd like to talk to you and so forth. And ironically, just before I went to interview with Stephen, and I wanted to meet him because it was just legendary within Apple. Um, and he, uh, I read this book. It was called The Next Big Thing. And it was about a person who had went to Apple and their experience. And she had talked about the concept of adopt and abandon, where the interview process with Steve, you know, it was just, oh my gosh, you're my best friend. I love you. And then as soon as she got on board, it was, she was totally abandoned uh, and wouldn't, he wouldn't even say hello to her. So the interview process, very surreal. So having just read the book, I'm sitting outside of Steve's office. Three engineers are in there. Steve is reading the riot act and the expletives were just flying left and right. So these guys come out with their head hanging Next goes in the head of sales. Uh, Steve's reading him the riot act, swearing up and down. Like he comes out with his head down. Then Steve comes out and he's the night Jack. He is the nicest, most charismatic guy you have ever met in your life. I mean, Steve, can I get you something to drink? Thank you for waiting. Gosh, you know, are you, know, are you hungry or anything? I mean, he's the, he was the most charming, charismatic guy, and. It was surreal. It was. I was sitting there. I was thinking, "Oh my God, this is exactly like the book." Um, but that was my experience with Steve. I, I obviously didn't go to next, um, but it was a very interesting experience uh, to go through that interview process. No, so the reason you didn't go, something else developed, or is you just related to us? He's not the the mentor you had in mind. <laughs> I just, you know, at the time, I just didn't believe in the business model that he had. Quite candid, right. You weren't, you weren't alone. It, it, was, it, was hard, it was a hardware company that was trying to transition into software. Oh, yeah. The, the next computer story. Uh, and I don't mean to take you there now. So thank you for indulging me. Um, and let's... Uh... But Jack, let me add one more thing to that. One, one, when I was at Apple, I learned a lot. I mean, um, it was a, an incredibly well-run company. And it, a couple of things that were stressed, even though it was a huge company... The little details are what mattered. And they excelled at focusing on the details. They excelled on the user experience. The user experience was everything. And so it was that was a huge, huge thing. The other thing I tell people was it was like working for a cult. I mean, it literally was like working for a cult. You had this common enemy that everybody hated, which was IBM. And no matter what, that was it. And you would go into these employee all hands meeting and you would come out so charged up that you would just, you, you'd want to take on the world. It's like, there's nobody that can beat us in the marketplace. We're going to crush everybody. Um, so it was, uh, it, it was, it was an incredible experience working there. And at the time you were there, it, Apple was uh, probably under a billion. I mean, it, it was really still a mid-sized company in many respects. People forget that. Uh, the yeah. Yeah, no, so it was uh, it was right around that size. The reason I left was I had an opportunity to go to a company and take a company public. And as the, as a finance guy, you know, it's like, do you want to play? Have the opportunity to play in a Super Bowl? And so, some people that I'd worked with in a prior life had reached out to me and had asked me to come there a few years prior. And it was really between them and Apple at the time. And I took Apple. And then they came back a few years later and said, hey, the, the issues that you had concerns about have now been fixed. Um, we really want to go down an IPO path and we want you to you know, come in, help us drive that. 
And uh, that, that's what did it. That's what uh, made me you know, leave Apple and go to the other company. And, and that was the first of two IPOs that I... So tell us a little more about that chapter. Let's just call it the, the, the IPO chapter. Yeah, yeah, I've done two IPOs. Um, the first one was a company called SCO, Santa Cruz Operation. And it was, that was the learning IPO. Uh, that was where you don't know what to expect. And, and so we were very fortunate. We, our, our audit firm was KPMG. The audit partners that we had were incredibly helpful. Uh, in a sense, they took me under their wing as well and, and would explain things to me. And we worked very closely. Uh, and, and so that was my first experience. Goldman was the bankers and, and that was very successful. Uh, the second IPO was a company called Cordiant. Um, I <clears throat> went to Cordiant really when they were early on. Uh, we went public and my mentor, Sam Spatafora, he was the uh, head of, no, actually he was the CEO there, uh, brought me in. And one of the things that's interesting is on an IPO, you do a roadshow. And a roadshow basically consists of anywhere from six to eight to 10 meetings a day. And then think of going on six to 10 sales calls a day where you're pitching your company 10 times. And some people said, oh my God, the roadshow is just so arduous. I loved it. It was great. I mean, you're pitching your story. You have people, you're telling them, you know, here's how we add value. Here's how we're going to make it. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So the CEO and I, we had a great time uh, going on the road and, and pitching the IPO story. Well, Steve, thank you for allowing me to ask you a few extra questions, Apple related and otherwise. We want to find out about BetterWorks now. Part of what I want to understand is how this company, whether it was similar to some of the other companies, how it might be a little different. We want to try to understand the chapter you're opening up here. So, uh, but first, let's begin with just this straightforward question. Tell us about BetterWorks. What does it do, and what are its offerings? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so BetterWorks is a company um, that it originally started out as a company that was focused on OKRs, which is objectives and key results, and uh, that whole management concept was one that Andy Grove had instilled at Intel. And John Doerr, when he was at Intel, uh, drank that Kool-Aid and believed in it in a, in a massive way. Uh, John took that management philosophy because it was so successful and has used it at a number of his portfolio companies, a Kleiner and so forth. And so John was the early kind of influence in having the company start focusing on objectives and key results. So we have technology that facilitates objectives, and then the related key results. Then the company started to expand into an area of conversations, feedback, and recognition. And so, and you'll hear that referred to as CFRs. And so you have those objectives and then the key results that make those objectives happen. But then now you also have conversations with your, with your employees. And so you're effectively doing away with the annual reviews and you're having these check-ins and check-ins can be done quarterly. They can be done monthly. Most people do them quarterly, but they, in a sense, then add to those and, and validate those objectives and key results. So you're constantly pulsing the business on how it's doing and, and how it's going. And you're, you're constantly keeping in touch with your employees as a result of that. 
We then have ex since expanded and included uh, the concept of calibration um, and engagement, which is really employee surveys. And so <clears throat> as companies, particularly in today's world, and I can you know talk more about this uh, you know throughout this interview, but working from home, this is a perfect product for it because you have these objectives that you've agreed to that this is what we need to accomplish. Then you have the key results that basically feed into those objectives that these are the quantifiable measures that we know that if we achieve these key results, we will have achieved these objectives. And our product is in the cloud. It's, it's enables, it ties remote workforce together and gets everybody on the same page. And uh, th th that's really, that's what we do. So you join in 2018 as the CFO. Am I correct yeah. about that? Mm -hmm. And how big is the company at that place in time? Is it as big as the firms you've been with in the past? Give us a sense of uh, if you were to look at your most recent chapters, the companies you've been involved with, where does BetterWorks fit inside? So BetterWorks is probably the smallest company that I've worked for. Uh, when I started, we were about 60 employees. Now we're over 100. Um, the what what brought me in was the CEO. The CEO is a great guy I'd worked with in a prior life. His name is Doug Dennerline. Uh, Doug has uh, tremendous experience in the space with respect to his time as president of SuccessFactors. Um, and the management team that he was putting together was different than a lot of other startups in that the management team consisted of people that had heavy enterprise software experience and had a lot of domain knowledge in the space. Um, the person that headed up product, uh, that heads up product marketing came from SuccessFactors. Um, the person that headed, headed up uh, our customer success uh, came from, um, uh, it was a large enterprise company, the name escapes me right now, Coupa, uh, Coupa, I'm sorry. And uh, so Doug was assembling a team of people that had been there and done that, that had deep domain knowledge in that OKR CFR space and had the ability to scale. And that's what attracted me to come to the company. Um, we've since grown the company, as I said, to over a hundred employees. Um, Very interesting. Um, all right, so uh, can you tell us in, as far as its capital structure is concerned, where are you in terms of raising capital and what have you? Yeah, well, so we've been through a, a few rounds where uh, the last round was a Series B round. Uh, the uh, we you know, our two pro we're very fortunate to have great investors. Our two lead investors are John Doerr, um from Kleiner, uh, representing Kleiner as well as himself personally, and Jason Green from Emergence Capital. So you can imagine two high powered individuals like that sitting on the board and having them you know, behind you as investors was, you know, we're very fortunate to have that situation. Okay. Well, we always like to ask for uh, finance leaders, top of mind metrics. And for most SaaS companies, this is kind of, uh, kind of obvious, which those metrics might be. Uh, so sometimes I like to ask this question in another way. Uh, and I'm curious when you first arrived, whether you felt you had all the visibility you needed, whether there was certain numbers that, uh, didn't come into your, uh, lines of sight as quickly as you wanted, or just hadn't been reported as regularly. Can you reflect a little bit on that for us? Yeah. So let me, let me start off with when every management role that I take, 
there are four key operating principles that I run by. And I explain those to the team right up front. The first operating principle is never say no without giving options. And it's very easy, particularly in GNA roles, when someone comes to you with a proposal to say, well, you can't do that. Sorry, Jack. I, I know you want to you know, want to spend that money or structure the deal that way. We just can't do that. Uh, but you're not adding value when you do that. But if you can now have that conversation with Jack, understand what's the business result he's trying to achieve, work with him on developing options, now you're adding value. And so the first principle that I instill is never say no without giving options. The second principle that I instill is think in terms of the business. When someone comes and says, well, what happened that our expenses went up last quarter? To have an answer of, well, we had a large accrual for compensation. Well, that, that doesn't tell you anything. You know, give the business reason behind everything. Look behind the numbers to articulate the story of what happened that answers their question. The next two are open communication. Uh, my staff, we, you know, we're going 200 miles an hour, but everybody knows what the other people, the other groups within my organization are always doing. And that helps because then you can leverage. And then very often somebody will hear something that sales is thinking about a promotion that affects maybe some other groups within my team that they didn't know about it. And so that open communication is key. And then the last thing is no surprises. Um, you know, bad news does not get better with age. Uh, let's get it out up front. We don't like surprises. Uh, give me an early heads up on things. And if I have an early heads up, then then I can help you, you know, or other people on the team can help you, you know, get past this. And, and all of a sudden, what was a negative, we can turn into a positive. So I start off with those four. And then with respect to um, the line of sight and, and the the top of mind metrics. Sure, there's there's all the typical metrics like ARR, NRR, TCV, EBITDA, operating cash flow. Uh, you know, th that's all the typical traditional metrics. But in a SaaS business, renewals, both bookings and revenue, renewals is a very large part of your bookings. And it's a very large part of your revenue. And so what I like to focus on is what's the gross renewal and what's the net renewal? The difference between the two being upsells, right? And so to the extent that you understand that, what it tells you is, how number one, how are we doing with landing and expanding within a given account? The other thing that tells you is, if a customer doesn't renew, why aren't they renewing? Is there something that we're missing in the product? Is there something that a competitor came up with that we didn't know about? So... I focus very heavily on the gross and net renewals because it tells a lot about what's going on behind the scenes with our customer base and in the market for that matter. That's Those are really interesting questions. And we've heard uh, finance leaders sort of point in that direction before saying, this is what we're trying to discover. But uh, how do you, how do you discover that? It seems like customers are sort of vague and you're, you know, the data is revealing some of this to you. Uh, but uh, as a CFO, have you ever had to dig down with a particular, uh, you know, face to face with a customer or what's the approach that you take sometimes to really understand better why something might be misfiring, why an offering isn't getting the traction it should? So we have a number of internal meetings um, on the customer success side. We have weekly meetings where we go over uh, renewals. And what we also do is we look at 
we can see our, 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 our customers utilizing or using our product. Um, they signed up for a thousand users. Are all thousand users using it? Uh, or is it only 20 users? Are they using it? Are, uh, how often are they going into the system and updating their, their, uh, their objectives and, and the status of their objectives? Um, so on that side, we have weekly meetings to discuss those types of things. If a customer comes up for renewal and we, the, the customer says, well, we don't want don't to renewal, why doesn't he or she not want to renew? And so w- that is a cross-functional meeting that happens every week. Um, and then there's other meetings that take place as well, where we double click into particular customer implementations and so forth uh, that give us the feedback. We also have channels within Slack that will uh, address gap analysis, product gap analysis, where on a sales cycle, uh, maybe a competitor has a particular feature that we don't have. Uh, and so uh, we utilize Slack to, to identify those types of things. So we have a number of different avenues because at the end of the day, there's almost an internal mantra of make every customer successful and never let a customer fail. And when Doug came on board, the retention rate was terrible. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I'm afraid to even quote it because it was <laughs> so bad. Um, but, you know, Doug focused on that and Doug brought in someone to head up customer success that did a great job of turning it around. And we focused on making those customers successful, whereas previously there was maybe an eat and run, got the deal done, got it signed. Okay, now I'm on to the next one. Now we have programs that where we sit by the, the, the customer and hold their hand going through implementation. We follow up with them on a regular basis. And so Doug got it. He understood it. And he had a management team that understood the customer is at everything. You don't want just one deal. You want that initial deal, but then you want additional follow-on opportunities. And as we've rolled out more product, uh, we purchased a company that has uh, engagement or survey capabilities. Now you have something that you can go back to that customer and sell. Um, so that's that's one of the big things that we're doing there. So one of the things we have uh, witnessed, perhaps, or we've been watching, is that it seems to us that uh, finance leaders are becoming more talent-minded. And I should mention that uh, the book, uh, John Doerr's book, Measure What Matters, uh, is perhaps uh, the most popular selection this year. It's been repeated multiple times when I ask for a book selection. So clearly something's afoot there. Um, And now that we're in this unusual environment, Uh, There seems to be a greater awareness of how employees work in their environment and how they operate. Uh, How am I doing? Am I talking about, is this part of your world, part of the conversation you folks must be having? Absolutely. There's a greater awareness around how people perform outside the office. And in fact, let's, you know, it's not what perhaps many thought. Uh, And so COVID has sort of allowed us the opportunity to revisit certain assumptions when it comes to talent management. Sure. So at a high level, our software provides a seamless way for everyone to keep goals at the top of their mind and in the flow of work. So it's part of your day-to-day you know, methodology. Yeah, our customers, basically, they set their objectives, they empower their teams to reach them, and then they t- track the key results to quantify the achievements or progress against those objectives that I mentioned earlier. Now, uh, 
it's an HR solution or is it, uh, do you look at it more broadly? Because I think finance leaders, what I was sort of trying to get at is I think finance is trying to measure some of the things your software is as well. On one hand, there's a functional group that we appeal to on the HR side that you referred to. Um, that our engaged technology with, with respect to employee surveys addresses that. Uh, the conversations and feedback uh, capabilities addresses that. So HR likes that part of it. Where the a lot of the business leaders, and I'm talking about CEOs, chiefs of staff, CFOs, the OKR side appeals to them. And uh, ironically, before I came to the company, I was looking to buy, uh, I was you know, wanting to get away from annual reviews and wanted to do, you know, check-ins instead. And I did all of this analysis on the space, actually, ironically, just before I started the company. And the thing that I liked about Better Works back then, and what really made a huge difference is not only do, does it take care of the HR side of conversations and feedback and all that, but you're, you're, you're attaching business objectives to it. You have quantifiable key results so people know exactly what's expected of them, quantifiably, not just objectively, right? And so it appeals to, on one hand, there's part of it that appeals to the HR side, but you know, on the other hand, the business side loves it because now you have quantifiable data. It makes everybody on the same page. Okay. And finance may have a hand or the FP&A team may have a hand in determining those OKRs, helping uh, calculate them or determine. What's Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not just it's not just the finance group, but it's also uh, it could be the sales group. It could be the marketing group because it's going to be different from group to group. Uh, and when you talk about like when we look at our our key objectives for the company, they're just not financial, uh, you know, objectives. There's, there's also, you know, customer metrics. There's also marketing metrics, sales metrics. Um, and so it, it's more than, but finance plays a key role because you need to understand all of that. And in many instances, finance is always viewed as this is the, the record of truth. And when it all comes down to it, when you, when you get down to what are those key quantifiable key results, they'll look to finance. Is this exact? Is this right? Is this exactly where they ended up at? I just want to, uh, before we move on, I just want to ask just about your, your finance team and FP&A. Do you have a, uh, I'm sure you have a, a number of individuals uh, dedicated to FP&A, but is it a, did you form a separate group and unit yet? Or where are you in the maturity of your, your FP&A team? Yeah, you know, I, I, I was very fortunate in that the team that I inherited was really a very good team. Uh, I have a controller, an accounting manager, uh, just, just a great team. And so, uh, again, I've been very fortunate in that regard. Uh, on the FP&A side, we've added an individual, a senior director level person to head that up. Um, and, you know, he has a great background, once again, a very experienced individual. And so that, because FP&A is very key. It's, it's, there, you know, you have to report the numbers so you know exactly what you're doing, but you really need to have the FP&A side that works closely uh, with the reporting side and works closely with all of the functional groups. And so uh, we, we've added that capability. Okay. And that's in the last year or so? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a actually, when I started, there was a person that was doing it and we just upgraded to um, a, a more senior level person. It, it has made a huge difference, uh, particularly with respect to a lot of activities that they took on uh, when COVID hit. And I can talk about that. 
Yeah. Can we uh, just touch on COVID a, a little more here and uh, find out how the companies responded to it? What would you tell us? Yeah. When uh, Well, first of all, when COVID, prior to COVID, we were very much uh, a, a re work remotely. Uh, we utilized Zoom very heavily, very heavily. I, I mean, all of our meetings were in Zoom. And um, so we were used to using that remote technology, right? And, you know, we drink our own Kool-Aid. We use our product internally. So everybody was connected with objectives and with key results and everybody was aligned and so forth. Um, so the the migration to work from home, 100% was easy for us. Um, <clears throat> we, the other, one of the differences from a product and a go-to-market perspective was that work from home use case became more dominant in the selling process. That resonated very well with our customers that, oh yeah, I see how this ties everybody together. Okay, got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, then from a financial uh, perspective, what we'd done was a couple of things, which was we looked at, because the experiment was working, the work from home experiment was working, do we need all these offices? And the conclusion that we came to is we don't. And so we've been able to close down some offices, close down some design centers, work from home 100% in those particular areas. And the experiment's working. Now, working from home, it, it, it's hard for people that have kids. It's really hard. And uh, so we're addressing that. But we've done a number of things on the work from home perspective, such as having virtual lunches where everybody gets together. We have virtual happy hours. Um, we'll have a, a virtual company check-in where everybody, you know, we'll have like a quick all hands, but then we break in, go into little breakout rooms uh, within Zoom where I'm there with six other people that maybe I never even talked to before, but now I get to know these people. So the work from home thing has been working. On the financial side, what we did, aside from shuttering some offices and saving a lot of money on, on office space and so forth, is we looked at, we took advantage of the environment and we looked at where are we spending our money. And then we went back and renegotiated 90 plus percent of all of the existing agreements that we had out there. And surprisingly to me um, was that most of the vendors were, were okay with, yeah, no, it's tough times out there. Yeah, no, we can give you a price break. No, we can give you better, better payment terms. Yeah, no, we can do this for you. Um, so we have this program you know, that we have on Slack called Save a Million Bucks. And so as people save money uh, through one way or another, they you know, post it on Slack and, and everybody cheers and so forth. But we were able to go back to our, a large portion of our vendor base, renegotiate our existing agreements, um, and that has saved us a lot of money as well. Okay, good, good examples. Um, we're going to jump to, I've asked you quite a few extras, so thank you, Stephen, being patient with us here. Uh, we have what we call our finance strategic moment question, where we ask you to share a moment and insight that you experienced along the way. You've had so many of these, uh, but uh, we're looking for just one where you saw an opportunity or risk and you uh, pointed the organization or your team in a different direction in response to it. Anything come to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? Yeah. Uh, so um, 
I was CEO in this role, but it, in many respects, it's a, my CFO background that made it work. And, and let me walk you through it. I joined a company. It was a turnaround situation. It was a publicly traded company. Joined as uh, the CEO. And I had previously been on the board of this company. And then they they offered me the CEO role. I We had just acquired an artificial intelligence company that we felt was going to give us a, a big edge in the marketplace. Uh, and so we were pretty excited about that. Uh, as I joined the company, the board and the management team wanted to go back and sell that company that we had just purchased. They wanted to take the money and build out a professional services organization so that we could do all the professional services ourselves. We were a software company, do all the professional services ourselves. And there was a huge conflict with that because our system integration partners were bringing us into transactions and then we would steal the professional services business from them. And you can imagine it doesn't make for good, good relations, right? So I double clicked into the, just the economics of that and, it, and the economics for growing the services business as well is going to increase our top line. But at the end of the day, professional services is a low margin deal. And what we were all about, we needed to increase our EBITDA on our bottom line. Yeah, we need to grow the top line, but the bottom line also is, is a significant part. So what, what I did was I said, we're going to get rid of the idea of selling off this company that we just bought. We're going to, if anything, we're going to decrease our professional services organization. We're going to become more heavily reliant on the, our system integration partners, give them that business. And what we'll do is we'll provide, we, we took professional services and really converted it to technical architects. And so what they then did is for these implementations, they were the ones that would go out and make sure the implementations were, were going uh, in the right direction, make sure that uh, the product was being implemented properly, that type of thing. And what that did, that made a huge difference because now our integration partners weren't competing against us for business. They viewed us as an enabler to them to get their services business. So they brought us into more opportunities. And as a result of, of you know that making that strategic change, we more than doubled the revenue of the company. Our, our working capital was at a record level. The bottom line performance was at a record level. Um, we, we did phenomenally well. Uh, and so I, I, that was really the, probably the most strategic moment that I can think of, you know, in my career so far. When we return, CFO Steve Springsteel enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. 
Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Hi, we're back and we've entered the mentoring round with CFO Steve Springsteel. Steve, this is where we ask you to look back once again and think about if there was a piece of advice you would give your younger self, what it might be. Uh, If I had to go back in time, I'd go into sales. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. A a couple of things that quickly come to mind is one of the first things that I would, would tell myself is realize that things aren't always aren't going to happen as fast as you as you'd like them to and you're going to drive yourself crazy um, if you want everything to happen instantaneously and so what i've found is as long as you have a good strategic and tactical plan that you can execute to that everybody understands and you can modify as appropriate you're going to be successful and you're going to be able to sleep at night because now you, you have something that you know when you wake up tomorrow morning, everybody's driving on the same thing. And that's huge, as opposed to going to sleep at night going, gosh, darn it, what am I, you know, all right, now what about this and what about that? And maybe I should write this down. So get that plan and get this tactical and strategic plan in place. Make sure everybody's aware of it. If you have a, you know, from a personal habit perspective, one of the things that I've learned is early on, and, and actually Sam was the one that, that my mentor was the one that really explained it to me is leverage from others. You don't know everything. I mean, I'm just a good old boy from the Midwest, right? I'm, I'm not, you know, uh, you know, the smartest tool in the shed, but there's a lot of people out there that are a lot smarter than me and I can leverage off of those people. And I've learned to, you know, number one, let others voice their opinions before expressing yours. That way, you know, they don't feel intimidated by you. And they don't say, oh, yeah, that's a great idea, Steve. Let's do that. I want to hear what other people have to say because they're experts in their in their, in their vertical, right? Um, and then I, I also keep a network of, of others in the industry that I can bounce off ideas off of. And so when COVID hit, my gosh, you know, the phone was ringing off the hook. The emails were flying left and right. Hey, what are you seeing here? What are you doing about this? Hey, we're thinking about shutting down offices. What do you think there? Um, so leveraging off of others is huge. And so I, I would say those would be you know, kind of the, the two things that I've learned early on. That's great. Um, this is where I, I often do ask for a personal habit. Is that your personal habit, leveraging off of each other, or should I ask for a personal habit as well? Uh, that is my personal habit, is, habit is, is leveraging. Yes. Yeah, I thought so. Okay. Well, would you have a book you'd like to recommend? Absolutely. And I tell you, the book that you need is Measure What Matters by John Barr. <laughs> Saw that one coming. I tell you, it's it, it's a great book, and the way that it's written is it talks, it takes, it's it's like a case study, right? And so you're going through multiple companies and seeing how OKRs affected each of those particular uh, case studies. And John Doerr, you know, John Doerr, he's had tremendous success, but I gotta tell you, just personally, he's just a very nice guy. He's incredibly bright. He's a super nice guy. 
He's very thoughtful about what he does, and the book brings a lot of that out. Interesting. Uh, Is it in part, uh, and I haven't read it, I, I really have to get a copy. Uh, because so many finance leaders have recommended it at this point, but is it, uh, uh, does he give some of his personal bio? Because I didn't realize he came out of Intel. That might be something Silicon Valley knows very well. Yeah. That was where John started. Uh, but I, I was unaware of that. Just to mention that Andy Grove is another, uh, his books are still being recommended by finance leaders who tell us, uh, much of what he shared, in oh yeah only the paranoid survive of course and uh the other one high output management he wrote a few others but uh, they would tell us that uh, his writings really influenced how they manage and think about people but uh, just to be clear john uh john door didn't come out of uh intel's finance function no no john, john was uh i believe on the technical side but john john has uh early video of andy grove uh talking about his okr methodology and you see this grainy old video, and it's, it's 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 very surreal. But that methodology that Andy Grove had really put out there has survived all these years. And again, John has taken that methodology, put it in place at Google when Google started, as an example. And you know, they seem to do okay with it. Is there a, finally we're we're up to our final question? Thanks for a great selection there, uh, as always. Um, we were going to ask you to look forward now and tell us what your priorities as CFO of BetterWorks. What are those priorities over the next 12 well, months? Well, you know, I think it's a, in today's environment, it's grow or die. Um, you need to grow. If, if, you're if you're declining, you're going to die. Uh, for us, we need to continue to pivot our business to optimize for growth. Uh, we, the use case of work from home res resonated incredibly well with our customer base and potential customer base, uh, with how we bring everything together in that work from home environment. And then continue to look at more methods and, and ways to become efficient, save costs and drive drive growth. Uh, so yeah, what do we focus on uh, our priorities in the next 12 months? It's, it's really those things. Steve Springsteel, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Great, thank you so much for having me, Jack. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.